What the devil? I want you to picture two neighboring farms that both raise chickens. And let's just say that one particularly cantankerous chicken starts squawking. What the heck's wrong with that creature? I have two very simple questions. For Pete's sake. What's the responsibility of the owner of said chicken? Don't he ever sleep? And what am I supposed to do if it's not my chicken? You gotta be kidding me. Feed it, shush it, scream at it, shoot it? These are difficult questions, especially since it's not my chicken. Lucifer's minion! I am very glad that you got a chuckle out of that. Yeah, I don't know why you clap for it. It's a cartoon. I love, love Pete. I'm glad that you got a chuckle out of it, though, because how many of you uh, were with us during the series in Judges? We just finished a series in Judges called The Eye of the Beholder. Okay, so in that series, we talked about last one was a sex addict, Samson. He was a mess. Ehud was a warrior, stabbed a fat king, spilled the, the contents of this man's intestines all over the ground. And, you know, people thought he was in there defecating. That really happened. I mean, there's just mass killings of people and all that stuff. It was a serious book, wasn't it? I'm glad to have a cartoon start me off today, right? Like, I'm glad that we can do something just a little bit lighter. This series is called Not My Chicken. So here's what we need to do before I tell you why the title and what's up with that and all that stuff. What we need to start with is a reminder of who God is and what he's up to in the world. So for those of you who are brand new with us, pay really close attention. I'm going to move quickly. For those of you who have been here for a little while, you'll, you know, this will be familiar to you, but it's important that we understand. And, and here's what we need to understand, that God created the world perfectly. And when he created the world, he created male and female in it, and he created all that we can see and all that we can't see, and everything was perfect. And yet when humankind, original man and original woman, rebelled from God and went their own own way they caused chaos in the world they caused brokenness in the world and things got fractured and busted really quickly so we're going to read from Genesis chapter 3 the consequences of humankind's sin that's what the bible calls that rebellion from god consequences of the sin and what has happened and so as we read uh, Genesis chapter 3 what i want you to listen closely for is what has been fractured what has been busted? What has been broken? What are the consequences of that rebellion? So here's what happens. Uh, th then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they, this is Adam and Eve, original man, original woman, sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Consequence number one is that Adam and Eve hide from one another. Do you see that? And it's not just about like covering up their nudity so that like in the 15th century, somebody could paint them and it wouldn't be offensive and they could have a little fig leaf, right? Strategically placed fig leaf. That's not what this is about. What this is about is I was once vulnerable to this person. I was once exposed to this person without any shame. It's not just about physical nudity, but it's about being totally vulnerable with somebody else and having a relationship with them. And now they're hiding from one another. And watch this. Here's what happens. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So now they're not just hiding from one another. They're also hiding from God. Why? Because who they are inside of them has been fractured. In other words, their personhood has been fractured. 
fractured. Their identity, where it was once whole and put together, is now broken. And because it's broken, you tend to hide things that are broken. Just like when Kaya, I actually didn't tell you this yesterday. Uh, Kaya took a, a rat tooth comb. You know the comb with like the little long thing on the end? Like it's like a kind of a pick thing on the end? She was playing with it on the couch and she said, Daddy, yeah, babe, I accidentally put a hoe in the couch. And yeah, so my wife now knows that. She didn't know that yesterday because Kaya was with me. And I said, let's hide it from mom, right? Because when something's been fractured, busted, broken, or you put a hole in it, you tend to hide it. This is what male and female are doing, man and woman. They're hiding from one another. They're hiding from God because their personhood has been fractured. Let's keep reading. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. Women of God, thank you. Uh, for enduring this so that we don't have to. We're not going to pull out an implication here quite yet. We will get there. We'll come back to this, but, but, but keep reading. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So not only do you have a fractured personhood, what you have now is that this man and woman who were supposed to be kind of co-equal vice regents and, 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 and the, the, the representatives of God in the world, now there's a power struggle going on. So their relationship has been fractured. They're hiding from one another. They're hiding from God. There's this power struggle and just trying to, things don't quite fit anymore. And so now you see fractured relationships. So fractured personhood, fractured relationships. And let's read this last consequence. Remember, multiply the pains in childbearing. Okay, we're going to add that little truth to this little truth right here. Is that Adam, or to God, or to Adam, God God said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree, which I commanded you not to eat by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it, you were taken and for you are dust and to dust, you shall return. In other words, this body that I have given you that was meant to live forever, that was meant to last forever is now not going to last forever. It's going to break down at some point. You're going to start aching in your hips and your knees and you're going to get a diagnosis and whatever it is, and it's not going to last forever. In other words, we have fractured bodies. That's even what it represents more than that, the pains in childbirth, but it, that's one of the things it represents is that our physical bodies are now fractured, not just our internal identity and personhood, not just our relationships with God and others, but even our bodies, all of who we are, are fractured. And so the mistake we make is this, that when we think of the gospel, we think of Jesus coming to die on the cross, raised from the dead in three days, and ascending into heaven so that when you die and this consciousness kind of disembodies this spirit or soul, it's going to go to heaven forever so it can play a harp on a cloud. And that's what, kind of what we think of. And yet God comes along and he says, no, I created the world perfect without fracture, without break. In other words, I created it whole, your personhood, your relationships, and your bodies. I created them whole. And so when the original sin broke that wholeness and it became fractured, I now sent my servant Jesus into the world, God in the flesh, in order to model for you wholeness in terms of personhood, relationship, and body even and go to the cross pay the penalty raise from the grave three days later so he demonstrates that he has all that authority and one day he's going to come back and he's going to finish this project are you with me that's the gospel that's the good news about jesus it's 
far more comprehensive than just you say, oh God, please forgive me for all the wrong stuff I've done so that one day when I die, I can go to the good place, not the bad place. We thought about uh, calling this series a whole bunch of other stuff. We thought about calling it Jesus Applies to Everything. Because that's essentially what we're saying is that Jesus applies to everything. Jesus applies to the way you treat your physical body. The good news applies to the, your emotional health and relational health. Uh, the good news applies to uh, how you kind of manage your internal self. The good news applies to your work and your play and your habits and whether you chose Cheerios or cornflakes this morning, whether you're drinking skim milk or whole milk. So, you know, skim milk is a sin. It's just, just what it is. It's just what it is. When we first got married, Amy drank skim milk. I'm like, this is water that looks white. Like, that's all this is. Drink whole milk. That's what Jesus would do. Uh, if, you, if you wonder, WWJD, it's, it's drink whole milk. But Jesus applies to everything. It's not just about where you're going to spend the, you know, the rest of eternity. Jesus came to bring wholeness and healing and restore, uh, re- restoration and renewal to all of who you are, not these little bitty compartments, because you are not compartments. You're a whole person, and Jesus came to bring healing and wholeness to all that. I also thought about calling this series Stuff I Learned in Therapy. Because we're going to talk about a lot of stuff I learned in therapy. I've been pretty honest about that. For the last 20 years, I've been doing therapy both in Phoenix, where I came from, and here in the greater Toronto area. Learned a lot of stuff in therapy. But I chose to call this series, oh, and I love the title so much, Not My Chicken. Here's why. Uh, Amy and I, like I said, have both done therapy as individuals and as a couple, marriage therapy. And we were in a therapy room one time where uh, our uh, licensed prof- professional therapist and her husband were doing some marriage therapy for us. And those two individuals have become close friends over the years, not just uh, the professional therapist that works with us. And any professional therapist that would work with me is nutso. Right? And so I like that about her. I think she's a little bit crazy, right? And she's talking to Amy about some relationship things that we're dealing with and some ways that we communicate and talk to one another. And she's using just standard normal language with Amy, you know, open and honest communication and vulnerability and, you know, not, you know, emotionally withdrawing and those types of things. And to me, I'm like, yeah, those words make sense. I understand what those words mean because I know words, but I'm a guy who likes to unpack concepts through analogies and metaphors. And that typically takes a very, very, very long time. So for Amy, like when she was in university, they would say, you know, uh, this paper is a five-page minimum. You have to have at least five pages. And for me, they would say, you know, the, the minimum is five, but the maximum is seven. So Amy would say in a paragraph what I said in 12 pages, right? Like, and I'd have to condense it to seven. She'd have to increase it to five. Some of you are like, how can you get up and talk for 40 minutes on a Sunday morning? I'm like, I know. I had six hours of material. I condensed it down to, for your sake to 40 minutes. And so as we're talking through this in therapy, I'm going, you know, this is, this is pretty just kind of standard language. I need a little more flower here, right? It needs a, this needs a little, bit, little bit bigger to me, right? And, and so my therapist, uh, who I love very, very much, looked at me and she said, I want you to picture two neighboring farms. I said, okay. And she said, let's say that on 
one particular farm, there's a bunch of chickens, and on the other farm, there are a bunch of chickens. And one of those chickens starts to squawk. And I don't mean just kind of squawk. I mean the thing is just going crazy. And it's not your chicken. It's your neighbor's chicken. And there's a fence in between your farm and your neighbor's farm. It's not your chicken. What are your options in order to deal with that chicken? Because that chicken is keeping you awake. That chicken is annoying you. What can you do? How can you help? And I said, the very first thing I would do is shoot the chicken. I'm American. That's what we do. That's what we do. Everybody's at all times packing heat in the U.S., right? So that's what I would do. Say, okay, look, first thing is, that's not your chicken. You can't shoot the chicken. I said, okay, well, then I can do this. I can climb over my neighbor's fence and address the issue. I can give the chicken something to eat, let's say. Maybe the chicken's hungry. She says, well, you don't know that for sure, right? Why? That's not your chicken. I said, okay, well, what if I ignore the chicken and put the pillow over my head and put earplugs in? And she says, well, don't you think your neighbor might actually want some help with that squawking chicken? Because that squawking chicken is probably keeping your neighbor awake too. And I said, yeah, I think they'd want help. That's why I offered to shoot the darn thing. And you said, I couldn't do that. And she said, can you maybe think about this analogy in terms of your relationship with Amy? And I said, okay. She said, let's say the farm is your life, and you're growing stuff on your farm, and you're trying to be productive on your farm, and you've got soy and corn and hogs and whatever, and Amy's got the same thing, and you're right up against one another, your neighbors, right? But these chickens, these problems, <laughs> they start squawking every now and then. Your insecurity starts squawking every now and then. I said, I'm not insecure. She said, that response tells me you're insecure right there, right? Your family of origin issues, your emotional brokenness, uh, the ways that you've learned to operate in the world and deal with people, you know, Amy's passive aggressiveness begins to squawk every now and then. My aggressive aggressiveness begins to squawk every now and then. Did I mention shoot the chicken, right? See, aggressive, aggressive. It starts to squawk every now and then. But you can't help your neighbor, because you can jump your neighbor's fence and deal with that chicken. That's called codependency. You can't just walk back into your room and cover your head with your pillow and go to sleep because that's called emotional withdrawing and ignoring your neighbor's issue. You can't shoot the chicken because that's just inappropriate, right? Like <laughs> Amy's dealing with an emotional issue and I'm like, boom, problem solved, right? That's not helpful. That's not helpful. She said, the best possible thing for you to do is walk over to that fence that separates your farm from hers and say, hey, I notice you got a squawking chicken. Is there anything I can do to help? You think your chicken might need food? If your chicken needs food, I got extra food. Does your chicken need to be shot? I'd be happy to do that. <laughs> And your neighbor's responsibility is come up to that fence and say, yeah, the, the chicken squawking is keeping you awake, keeping me awake too. I'd love to have some help. Okay, well, let's work together to deal with this chicken. But one of the things that really freed me up was my therapist looking at me over and over and over again and saying, that is not your chicken. It's not your chicken to deal with. That's her chicken. 
It's funny because Dave Lewis mentioned this as we were talking about this sermon series a couple weeks ago. He said, you know, uh, you know you've got a problem and I'm not going to deal with it because it's not my chicken. He goes, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that's not how we're supposed to use that phrase. You know what's funny is that Amy and I use that phrase at our house all the time. There'll be stuff come up that's really just mine to own. You know, like, I get insecure about preaching. I know that sounds a little weird, but I get insecure. So at the end of the day, I'm like, you know, I don't know about my preaching today. It seems scrambled, and my jokes didn't land, and I did that fight with the Philistines joke, and nobody liked it, and they all booed me, and I don't like it. I'm very insecure. And Amy will go, sounds like you got a chicken squawking. But I want you to know, it's not my chicken but I'm happy to help with whatever your chicken needs. I say, don't tell me it's not your chicken. It's your chicken. Figure it out, it's your chicken, right? And this metaphor of, of life and relationships and how we manage ourselves and manage our internal life, this metaphor to me, I mean, light bulbs were going on in this therapy room. I'm telling you what. I mean, it was just one after another after another. And I said, oh my gosh, we can compare this to this and this to this and this. And all these Bible verses were coming up. I said, I'm going to do a sermon series on this and I'm going to call it Not My Chicken. And I was so excited. And they all said, that's a stupid title. <laughs> it is a stupid title, but it's the title we chose. And I'm hoping that over the next four weeks or so, you would get a picture of what it means that Jesus came to bring restoration and healing and wholeness to all of who you are, your whole farm. And get a picture of what it means to relate with your spouse uh, with your friends, with your coworkers, with your kids in a healthy way where there's boundaries. I'm hoping that we'll get a picture even of what it means to care for our physical bodies in the way that God would have us do that. Yes, the Bible talks about caring for your physical body. We're going to talk about that. And this is all just stuff I learned in therapy, right? Because those are great opportunities for us to take biblical principles and to learn how they apply immediately today to where I'm at. So here's the specific one that we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about pursuing wholeness in relationships. If you're jotting notes down, would you just jot this down so we know kind of where we're headed this morning? I just want to give you a couple of very simple biblical principles from the book of Proverbs and even from some patterns in the life of Jesus that would help you pursue wholeness and rightness in your relationships. Dating, marriage, friendships, co-workers, boss, people that report to you, pastor and congregation, whatever. I want to help you pursue wholeness in those relationships. And, and before we get to the biblical principles, I want to make three very quick observations about culture. Here's the first one. We're really good at, we're not really good at talking and listening. Do you know that? Do you realize that? That we, we've kind of forfeited this whole talking and listening thing. I remember um, when text messaging first came out. Does anybody remember when text messaging first came out? And I would start texting. I would text my friends all the time. Text, 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 text. And I stopped calling. I stopped calling. And there was a moment I literally thought to myself, and I said it out loud to my friend. He said, I said, um, I wish there was a way that instead of texting, we could somehow send a voicemail, like message, 
and like you could actually hear my voice rather than just the text. And he goes, yeah, it's called calling. I'm like, oh man, I, I text too much apparently, right? I text too much. We forfeited these skills and when people engage in talking and listening in a kind of a old school, traditional type of way that doesn't involve technology and all that stuff. It's strange to us. It's wild to us when people kind of on opposite sides of political parties or that don't share the same faith background or whatever, just sit down over a cup of coffee and have a conversation and listen to one another without trying to prove their point or without trying to argue or whatever and just have a cordial, open, honest conversation where they are talking to one another and listening to one another. That's just a lost art in our culture. Just want you to know. Number two, technology hasn't helped. Somebody literally said amen in the first service. The technology has not helped us. And I'm not talking just about like Instagram and Facebook and the internet and all that stuff. I'm talking about technology like an electronic garage door opener. Did you know that? You, you remember, some of you are old enough to remember th that before there was electric garage door openers, you had to pull your vehicle up to your garage and you put your vehicle in park and you'd get out of your vehicle. And you'd walk over to the garage and open it up. And then you'd get back in your vehicle and pull your vehicle into the garage. And then get out of your vehicle and go back and pull the garage down. And it took longer to do it than it took me to explain it. That's a very long time, right? That's a very long time. And now we have these little electric garage door openers. So what happened was, and this is proven even sociologically, is that people when they got out of their cars to open their garage, their neighbors were pulling in at the about the same time. And so their neighbor gets out of the car to open the garage. And then when you're both outside of the car and you can see your neighbor and look your neighbor in the eye, then you have to what? Talk to them. It's the worst. It's the worst, isn't it? It's the worst. Hi, how are you today? How was your day? You know, whatever. And then the next thing you know, they're borrowing a cup of sugar and then they're coming over for coffee and you actually have a relationship. But now, praise God, I have an electric garage door opener, so I don't have to talk to people. I pull in my vehicle into the garage, I push the button, I pull into my garage, and I push the button again. And if my neighbor's there, and he just so happens to wave to me, I can act like my music is too loud, right? And I just don't, I just totally ignore them. I don't have to talk to anyone. It's really great. I'm being facetious, of course. I'm being sarcastic. Technology hasn't helped. Same thing with Instagram and Facebook. Some of you have like 8,000 Facebook friends. They're pretend relationships. And, and we fooled ourselves into believing that we have meaningful, healthy relationships when we really don't. It's like being thirsty for water and drinking soda. Like it takes the edge off the thirst for a minute, but it actually makes it worse over time. It's the same thing. And I'm not against Instagram and Facebook. I'm not against social media stuff. I'm just saying when it becomes a replacement for the true thing, that it hasn't helped us develop meaningful, healthy, biblical relationships. Number three, the result is this, that we live in a culture that is materially rich, but relationally poor. We live in the richest culture on the planet. More stuff and more clothes and more cars, more buildings than any civilization ever in the history of humankind. And yet loneliness is a pandemic and suicide is on the rise. And we are disconnected from other people. Even though we have 9,000 little personal devices to make us connected with one another, we are disconnected because our relationships are broken. Are broken. So we got to learn. We've got to grow. 
We got to let the Bible and the life of Jesus speak into how we do relationships and how we engage in friendships in order to develop health and wholeness in the midst of those things. So again, if you're taking notes, jot this down because this is the one big thing that I want you to hear today, especially when it comes to developing relationships in your life. And that's this, is that a purposeful farm is a productive farm. A purposeful farm is a productive farm. Farmers don't wake up in the morning and go outside and go, huh, kale, awesome. They work over time to decide, I'm going to plant soy, I'm going to plant corn, I'm going to raise hogs, I'm going to do whatever. And they purpose land for those things. And they work it and they till it and they change it and they move it. And they work hard to create purpose so that their farm can be productive. Same thing goes for your life. Even Rick Warren wrote a book in the last 25 years on the purpose-driven life. Your life is not going to be productive unless you have a purpose to it. And the same thing goes for friendships. They are not going to be productive unless you have a purpose. If they are haphazard and accidental and you're just surrounding yourself with whoever it is that comes along or whatever, and you just don't think about it, you don't have a purpose to it, what you're going to find is that those friendships are fractured and break down. And so what I'm encouraging you to do today is to bring purpose and meaning and even boundaries to your relationships, all of your relationships in life. Let's take a look at a couple Bible passages that's going to support this idea. One of them is iron sharpens iron and and one man sharpens another. These are uh, a relationship between two individuals, not necessarily two men, but just two individuals. And iron sharpens iron. Why does iron sharpen iron? For what purpose? Well, so that iron can be effective in whatever way you ask it to be effective. If you're making a sword, it's not just for the sake of, I'd kind of like this iron to be a little sharper. No, you want it to cut something. There's a purpose there. There's a design there. C.S. Lewis actually uh, wrote this about about purpose in life and the way that purpose in life uh, brings purpose to friendships. He wrote this. He said, those who have nothing can share nothing. In other words, those who have no purpose can share, cannot share it with anybody else and can share nothing with anyone else. So those who are going nowhere can have no fellow travelers. It's very hard to walk shoulder to shoulder with somebody, arm in arm, hand in hand, unless you've got a destination in mind. Otherwise, you're just walking wherever, and they're just walking wherever, and you can't develop close-knit, healthy, whole relationships. Uh, The book of Proverbs says this, says, stay away from a fool, for you will not find knowledge on their lips. See, this is a choice. It's volitional. There's a don't engage in those types of relationships, but do engage in these types of relationships. That does not happen accidentally. That happens on purpose. In fact, Jesus to his disciples said this, watch, you did not choose me, but say those three words with me. I chose you. It has theological implications. It has missiological implications, but we can also learn from Jesus here that he made a choice. So that's the first thing I would tell you when it comes to relationships. And if you would just jot this word down and it's just this, choose, choose, Be deliberate, don't be accidental. A purposeful farm is a productive farm. So be purposeful when it comes to those relationships. Be purposeful when it comes to pursuing a spouse. Single people, we talked about this last week. Do that on purpose. 
if you do it on accident, it's going to be very painful for you. Choose a couple of very close, intimate friends. Choose that are going to sharpen you and come alongside you and pray with you and walk with you in your life. Choose. Don't do that on accident. Make a choice to invest time and energy. Choose. Be deliberate. Do that on purpose. That is a choice that you have to make. It does not happen accidentally. Again, no farmer wakes up and goes, neat, a whole crop of soybeans. That happens on purpose. And the same goes for our relationships. Choose. Now, I want to give you one quick Bible tip that I think is really, really, really critical, especially in our culture today, because the world has gotten smaller and we're able to connect with people and we're able to make phone calls and unlimited long distance and Instagram, Facebook, and all that other stuff. But here's what the Bible would say about the friends that you choose, the tight relationships, the spouse that you choose, the relationships you choose to invest in. Here's one thing the Bible would say. Look, Better is a neighbor who is near than a brother who is far away. So, so watch this. Watch what's happening in the book of Proverbs here. You would think that the brother is a superior relationship to the neighbor because the brother is family and the neighbor is not. But the Bible is saying that the neighbor who is close is better than the brother who is far. That doesn't mean you can't maintain a relationship with the brother who's far. That doesn't mean that relationship isn't important. That doesn't mean that person is not valuable or insignificant. What the Proverbs is saying is it works better in life when you choose your neighbors, those who are close to you in proximity, those who are near to you in, in physical space. I'll tell you that from, even from my own life, we have some very, very close friends that will be lifelong friends that live in the city that we move from, and it's on the western side of the United States. It's a long way. There's a three-hour time difference. I love those men and women to death. I would give my life for them, but the bulk of my time and energy is invested into this community of faith. These relationships, people who live close to me, people that I can sit across the table from, FaceTime is great, email is great, text messages are great, but a neighbor who is near is better than a brother who is far. So as you're strategically choosing your relationships, first, choose, do that on purpose, choose wisely, and second, choose those who are close to you in proximity, so here's the, here's the last thing I want to share with you, and then we're going to talk a little bit about it, how the life of Jesus actually unfolds this for us, and then one uh, really easy point of application to take home with you today. Here's the last one. Uh, the book of Proverbs also says, let your foot be seldom in your neighbor's house, lest he have his fill of you and hate you. <laughs> That's so funny. That's so funny. Okay, so uh, you might have heard this before. Benjamin Franklin once said that uh, guests and fish are similar and that they both start to stink after three days, right? So the Bible is saying the same type of thing. The Bible is encouraging us to establish boundaries in our relationships, boundaries in our friendships, boundaries with our acquaintances, boundaries, right? Let not your foot, let your foot be seldom in your neighbor's house. You don't need to be over there every day out saying you're welcome, right? But boundaries aren't just designed to keep people out. 
they're also designed to keep people close, aren't they? So the Bible says on the other side of this coin, watch, better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. In other words, those who are closest to you, give them opportunity to speak honestly to you and keep them close. Some of you struggle with boundaries, especially in your families and your extended families. People are running all over your boundaries all the time, saying things to you, giving unsolicited advice and telling you, when are you going to get married? You know, don't you, don't you guys have kids? Are you saving for retirement? It's like, I don't, what's your name again, Aunt Polly or something? I, you know, I don't know. And we have these bad boundaries in relationships. Some of us have uh, this issue where we are unable to keep people close or even unwilling to keep people close because we won't render ourselves vulnerable to them. And so here's, and we'll finish our statement here. Choose your neighbors, then put up a good fence. Choose your neighbors, then put up a good fence. You may have heard it before. Good fences make good neighbors. I believe that. I believe that. And the fence is designed to help us develop relationships that are healthy and sustainable over the course of a period of time. Some of you, how many of you, I'm just curious. This is just out of curiosity. Would you just shoot your hand up? It doesn't have to be way up here like this. Just shoot your hand up. If you have more than a thousand friends on Facebook, more than a thousand, anybody? Kevin Chan, is he in here? Kevin Chan has 1,300 or something like that. It's unbelievable. And Kevin Chan, with all of those people, has a deep, meaningful connection. Each one of those 1,300, that's absolutely not true. That's not true. That's not true. And we fool ourselves into believing that that's actually possible. It's not. It's not. And so we have to realize that there are those in our lives that God has sovereignly placed there that are critical people for us that we have to wrap our arms around and say, I am choosing to keep you close to me, render myself vulnerable, open myself up and be honest with you and develop an intimate relationship with you. And then there are some where we just set up boundaries and that's okay. Men and women of God, it's okay. Some of us come from cultures and backgrounds and even now they're like, oh, I don't like boundaries and fences and keeping people out. That's not what they're for. They're to help you be whole. And some of you, again, you might be thinking like, well, does Jesus really do this? Yes, Jesus really does this. Let me ask you a question. When Jesus fed a whole bunch of people with five loaves and two fish, how many people did he feed? Not a trick question. How many people? 5,000, right? 5,000. Actually, it is a trick question because it was probably closer to 12,000. It's probably closer to 12,000. Here's why. They only counted men back then. I'm not saying that's good, bad, or otherwise. I'm just saying that's what happened. So the likelihood is if you add women and children, which they would not have counted, Jesus uh, fed about 12,000 people. He interacted with the multitudes. He wept over the city of Jerusalem. He taught the multitudes. He extended grace to the multitudes. That was the big crowd that he dealt with. But by the time he died, how many followers did he have? Only about 100. Only about 100. So he had the multitudes that he interacted with, and then he had his followers. But how many disciples did he have? 
Yeah, so there's this different kind of level. Do you see it? And even among those 12 disciples, he had three that were the tightest ones with him. Peter, James, and John. Just three. Peter, James, and John. That he brought with him to the Mount of Transfiguration. That he brought with him to the Garden of Gethsemane. So we look at Jesus' life and we say, he didn't keep these people at arm's length. He didn't, I mean, he didn't love these guys any more than he loved these guys. Or these guys were less important or more important. No, he extended grace, love, care, and concern to all these people, but Recognize in the limitations of his humanity, it was not possible to develop 12,000 intimate friendships. It's not possible. And so we have to choose our neighbors wisely and then put up good fences. So what I want to offer to you is something that my therapist and a lot of licensed professional therapists use, and it's really reflected here in the life of Christ in the way that he kind of managed his relationships with the multitudes, his followers, disciples, and then even those three, Peter, James, and John, and what it's called is the circles of intimacy. So if you're jotting down notes, you can jot that thing down, just draw those concentric circles there on your paper. Um, And here's the deal. This circle here in the middle is the circle of intimacy. These are the people in your life that you are closest with. These are the people in your life that you cannot imagine living without. And there shouldn't be more than about four or five, unless you have eight children, in which case there should be more, right? So let me ask this question a little bit different way. Who are the people that you regularly share a washroom with? That's the people that belong in this tightest circle, right? Like not the people that come over to your house and use your washroom and then leave. I mean the people that you come into the washroom and you're like, why is there toothpaste on the mirror, right? What in the world? Why is your stuff everywhere? Why are there clothes on the floor? Those people belong in that circle. How many of them, for those of you who know me, how many do I have in my life that belong in that circle? You know, four, me, Amy, Kaya, Canaan. That's it. I don't share a washroom with myself, although I do have multiple personalities, which is interesting, but, but that's all that goes there. My extended family doesn't go there. My closest friends don't go there. The congregation here at Babyland Church, you don't go there. That's my tightest circle. I keep these people very, very close. I've got a little bit of a fence around them, not to, you know, people are thinking, oh, you got to let your children soar. Yeah, I get that. That's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is keeping those, those relationships close, right? And it also sets up a boundary that says those in my most intimate circle are also not in my friendship circle, right? Because my friendship circle is kind of the next circle. You throw up that next slide. My friendship circle is kind of that next circle. I've got people that I share my ups and downs with, people that I pray with, people that I share challenges with and successes with. Those are my friends. Those are, this is like the Jesus three, Peter, James, and John, and these are like his 12 disciples that he lived life with, but it's not people you share a walk with. You understand what I'm saying? And, and, and we have to kind of set boundaries and expectations when it comes to develop, developing these relationships in a healthy and whole way. 
The third level is, the, is, is what we're going to call the, the participation circle. These are the people in your life that you attend worship with, that you might attend a class with. These are your coworkers that you go to lunch with and that you exchange pleasantries with, that you're kind to and you know more than just a surface level, but those, it's those types of people in your life. And finally, there's the circle of exchange. This is the people that do your hair. This is the person that checks you out at Longo's. This is the person that serves your table. And Jesus had people like this in his life. You know, the nameless Pharisee or the nameless uh, woman that he healed or whatever. He had those types of people in his life. And he still extended grace, love, and goodness to them. It doesn't mean you don't like them. It doesn't mean they're not valuable people. It just means that you cannot have 12,000 intimate friends. And so when we set up these expectations for ourselves and we begin to choose wisely who belongs in what circle and then invest accordingly, what we see is that God begins to create wholeness and wellness and, and help even and constructive friendships and relationships. So here's the deal. If you're a Christian person, I know that not everybody in this room is, but if you're a Christian person, I would strongly encourage you to make sure that you've got at least a good chunk, three, four, five, of your friends that are in this circle. I know some of you have maintained relationships for a really long period of time and that kind of stuff, but these guys, they should, they should be of a similar faith background than you and, and a similar faith moment than you. They should be Jesus lovers. Not necessarily all of them, but a lot of them, okay? Uh, these guys are, are, are just, again, a group of people that you can extend life and goodness and, and, and grace to as you kind of do your life. But my encouragement to you is to choose wisely those who are close to you and then set up healthy and helpful and appropriate boundaries, we're going to kind of conclude where we started, and, and, and then I, I want to go back and, and take a look at this graphic one more time. But remember that a purposeful farm is a productive farm. So my encouragement with you today is to be purposeful in your relationships. Don't let them be haphazard. Do those things on purpose. Strategically organize your life in such a way that you're surrounding your people and all surrounding yourselves in all of those circles with people who are going to bring meaning, significance, and, and specifically the life of Jesus into your life. Let's go back to that graphic one more time. I want to give you one particular application that you can do this week. How many of you already know what names you would put in, in most of these circles, or at least in a couple of them. Yeah, good, me too. Uh, again, you shouldn't have 30 in here in, unless you have that many children, uh, which could be you, I don't know. So you, you, once you get to, you know, you, this probably shouldn't hit double digits, all right? And, and these guys are the guys that you share intimate details of your life with, you share your ups and downs, your challenges, they're praying for you, all that stuff. So what I would encourage you to do this week is on a piece of paper, draw these four concentric circles and write names down in those circles. If your spouse does not make it into the circle of intimacy, <laughs> two things. One, do not write that name down. Number two, 
Make an appointment with me this week, okay? Because we need to talk about that, all right? So, and, and then the second thing I would encourage you to do, once you've got some names in those places, can you think about one of those names that you would like to move closer to you? I have this person that, that has participated in my life for a little while, but I want to invite them closer to me to sit at my table and be my friend that I can count on, pray with, and they can sharpen me as I pursue Jesus. I have this really close friend, but, but I'd like to invite them into this kind of circle of intimacy. Single people do not use this as a pickup line, okay? We've been friends for a while. I'd like to in, invite you into my circle of intimacy. That's not, not going to work. Not going to work. Just ask for a phone number, all right? It's not that complicated. But how can you be strategic and purposeful? And for some of us, th those boundaries just need to get a little tighter. I'll be honest with you. Those boundaries just get, need to get a little bit snugger where you go, you know what? Uh, we, we're not kind of in this friendship level. We're just kind of more in this participation level. That does not mean you go tell that person that. You know what my pastor said to tell you? You know, that's, that's not how that works. It's just a matter of creating boundaries, healthy boundaries, and that's okay. And being strategic about those friendships because a purposeful farm is a productive farm. Would you pray with me? God, I pray for wisdom over our congregation today. I pray um, wisdom for our church that we would see the relationships and the people that you've sovereignly placed into our lives as gifts from you made in your image, but that we would also see that some of those relationships will just be different than others, and that's okay. And that we would be able to have the courage and the wisdom to make appropriate decisions about those that we would like to draw closer for your glory and for your kingdom. And so we can experience that restoration and wholeness that we've been talking about. And for those that maybe need a little snugger boundary, God, would you give us the courage even to do that so that we're strategic, purposeful in those relationships. God, we understand the principle, but the application here is, is not going to be easy. And so again, God, we just pray for your, um, your wisdom and, God, just supernatural strength and courage to carry it out. In Jesus' name, amen.